0: This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on
1: Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson out through the week. He'll be back next week at the close today on the FTSE. Just a little bit lighter, down a half of 1%. A lift in the second half of the session in the United States. The S&P 500 up four-tenths of 1%. Tech, big tech, bouncing back. The Nasdaq up by 1.5% in the United States. Some real underperformance for big tech through last week. The Amazon stock, having five straight days of losses coming into Monday. Microsoft down to around about 5% last week as well. So a big week, a big couple of weeks ahead for big tech with Microsoft earnings this coming Wednesday, then closing out the month of July with earnings coming from Facebook on July 29th. Then on the 30th, we will hear from Apple on Amazon as well. So big tech very much in focus. Worldwide, though, the story is all about fiscal policy. Fiscal authorities on both sides of the Atlantic trying to make some progress on some much-needed fiscal moves. For our audience worldwide, the focus through the week coming into this week at least has all been on fiscal policy meeting over in brussels european leaders trying to get that elusive breakthrough said to be agreeing on something in and around 390 billion still got to agree on that and the strings attached to any funds that will be dispersed to the likes of italy which has been hard hit by this pandemic mr no that used to be wolfgang Schäuble of germany that is now mr rutter of the netherlands let's join mr no Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. I wonder how you would behave in these summits over in Brussels, Marcus, as they get to about 1am local time. How you would have reacted last night as this just carried on through the night into the morning?
2: <laughs> oh, well, I think that everyone knew this was going to be a a stamina fest, and uh, they've been quite clever to um, get breaks and do different things and have sidebar meetings uh, and, um, and stagger it. Um, over a period of time, rather than literally being stuck in the same room and not being allowed out, as it used to be the case. But I think the one thing we can probably be thankful for is that the British aren't in this because. Uh, <laughs> now, now well, they can't. They can't blame, blame
0: the British anymore, Marcus. Well, for well, they any still of this, can, of
2: course. But they, they, they can't directly blame it. You know, to this particular thing. But I mean, look. I think there's a lot more dynamics to this particular negotiation than people uh, had initially realised. I mean, obviously. I'm slightly disappointed that they, they've shaded the grants down from 500 down to 390, not because I don't think that that isn't wise and frugal, it, it, it's just that it, it reduces the wow factor. Nonetheless, at the moment, the bond markets certainly seem to be voting mostly with their feet. I mean, Italy's not doing as well as it was earlier in the day, but it, you know, it's, it's substantially lower yield again today. Um, having been uh, over 10 basis points at one point tighter, it's, it's still uh, you know, got most of that uh, which shows that the markets are overall happy that the, this package is going to get through, and the grants versus loans issue is not necessarily that 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 uh, that worrying. What is it interesting? I think is is how um, they tied it not just this recovery fund, but in with the overall seven-year multi-financial uh, framework, which is uh, important that they've done the two together, so they can just get this whole budget issue out of the way once and for all, and not have to go back at it again later in the year. And secondly, how they tied it in with the rule of law, because, you know, a lot of these uh, big packages for the likes of Italy and Spain make sense, but they make less sense, perhaps, when they're given to, say, Poland and Hungary, particularly if there is uh, less, um, should we say, happiness with the way that their legal system is working at the moment. So tying that in, uh, there's more than just a north-south divide going on here. There's also an east-west one. Um, So it's solving a lot of the problems, or, or should we say at least they are openly... Getting to the nub of a lot of the wider problems in one go, and if they do get a deal, which looks like they are going to, even though it's been delayed by a couple of hours, hopefully it'll be a much more fundamental one, which will which will bind European unity for a longer period of time.
0: Is this a mechanism which they can use again and again? Because there are some people that think this is the fiscal policy version of whatever it takes, and what that did for monetary policy back in 2012. Are we witnessing a big transformational moment for European integration, or is this a one-off for a one-off pandemic?
2: Um, It's it's, it's neither of those. It's a bit of everything, but but not not, not necessarily a a defining moment. All the guff about Hamiltonian moments is is missing the point, um, because it's nowhere near that. However, it is definitely a a mini-step towards something like that. The fact that combining it in with the the seven-year budget, I suppose, makes it... um, perhaps a little bit more permanent, and yes, this, this model can certainly be used again, but there's no guarantee that it will. Um, but certainly it seems to be the right way of going about it. Um, and I think that you know where the, the devil is in the detail, and clearly where, the, where the, the, the Dutch and the Austrian, et cetera, are looking at, is it's not so much the granting of, of large sums of money, it's making sure the disbursement of those funds is very closely um, monitored, and there, is, there are checks and balances to so every form of uh, of you know you can please go take X billion, but that has to be fully justified and um, and monitored throughout. Now we all know in, in Europe, like any country, you know a lot of this goes port barrel stuff, and it gets it gets sloshed around and, and, and it doesn't quite go to where it should have done. But they can minimise that, and at least there's a level of confidence that the stuff it does get spent on, if that d- does actually work and the process for that monitoring works, then yes, we may start to get a to situation where the northern countries will be happier. That, that if monies are taken um, above and beyond, that they are used properly, and therefore that therefore there might be more of a closer unity.
0: Any potential hurdles this evening, as they all reconvene again and get back into talks and talk about the strings attached? Which, let's be clear, just as contentious as agreeing a sum.
2: Yeah, but there there are definitely uh, ongoing problems with, with potentially from from Hungary uh, and Poland, even over, over the rule of law issue I mentioned earlier, whereby they are being. Um, if they've been brought to, to heel on, on some of their um, straying away from the European norm, um, that potentially they could, they could say no. Um, equally, and it's even small countries like Portugal have not got a very good deal out of this. In fact, they're going to end up in net payer. So you can see, I'm not saying it will be Portugal, but there might be one or two countries who might think that this is their chance to uh, engineer a little bit more um to get uh, a little bit out of it and and win some some domestic prizes. I mean, certainly the Dutch have been accused uh, of of playing to their own domestic gallery um, for being so frugal. But uh, nonetheless, it's it's fallen to them. Uh, So there is a potential that one or two or, or more countries decide it isn't quite their liking and use a bit of leverage. But I think, I hope we're past that stage.
0: I think we all hope that, Marcus. Watch this space later this evening as these talks continue. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, always fantastic to get him on the programme, a good friend of the cable. Coming up on the programme, another good friend of Bloomberg, Mohammed al Arian, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and Chief Economic Advisor to Allianz. He joined us on Europe a little bit earlier on. Take a listen to what he had to say on the EU economic negotiations next on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Earlier on today, we caught up with Mohammed al Arian, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and Chief Economic Advisor to Allianz. Take a listen to what he had to say about EU economic negotiations
3: undoubtedly is going to be smaller in size and there's going to be conditionality attached but what's critical here is that there will be agreement on a compromise and and every side will be able to go back home and declare victory and that puts a foundation in place if you need to do more. That's why it's a milestone it is a step forward on fiscal integration and it's a very important step forward to support the monetary union that is key to this ever closer.
0: So, and Mohammed, you- I've heard this several times over the last several days that this is a mechanism that, if agreed upon, we can return to and do more with. Mohammed, is it that or is it a one off? Because either outcome has huge repercussions for financial markets. If it's the former, great. We really have to revalue Europe and erode redenomination risk in a way that we haven't done for the last several years. If it is just a one off, then I'm not sure we've got anything good here, Mohammed. All we have is a very late response to the pandemic and the economic pain that we experience on the continent right now. And we're not going to return to this in the future. Which one is it and how can you be sure?
3: So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It really does matter. Um, I believe it is the former. This is not a one-off. This is the start of an important process. That is how Europe gets to better positions. The market, John, if you look at the Italy-Germany spread, that is back to March levels. We are now back to around 150 basis points. So the market also believes that between this fiscal agreement and the ECB, we are getting to a place where you worry less about the really bad outcomes.
0: You don't get rid of re-denomination risk, but you certainly erode re-denomination risk. Mohammed, with that in mind, if we can make some progress later this evening, and let me be clear, it is still really contentious over in Brussels about the strings that would have to be attached to any money just handed out. But if we can make some real progress overnight, what do you think needs to be revalued, re-evaluated on the continent in financial markets?
3: I think it's the euro versus US and as you know for a very long time I've been saying wait on fading the US in favor of Europe. Uh, given what's happening in the US, given what's happening in Europe, I think it's harder to argue against fading some of your US exposure in favor of more European exposure.
0: Mohammed, away from the currency, if you look at the Italian bond market, European peripheral banks, any of them attracted to you at the moment from your perspective?
3: They've been so distorted by central bank action, and same for other elements of the bond market, that I'm not quite sure what you're getting unless you have to be in those bond markets. So, no, John, at these levels, I think you just respect what central banks have done and you stay mostly on the sideline unless you have no choice.
0: So, Mohammed, there's a key distinction here. Believing in revaluing Europe just in terms of the multiple that you would put on a single euro of earnings and believing that we can generate a sustainable, durable recovery on the continent. If you have confidence about one, do you have confidence about the other?
3: No, and that's really important. So we think of a whole element of risks, and you have to address each and it's not just limited to the, the two you cited. There's other risks as well. There's liquidity risk. There's all sorts of other risks. No, I think there is still a question mark as to what is Europe's engine of growth. Europe will not be able to rely on the global economy. The global economy is as as desynchronized as I've ever seen it. The U.S. is stumbling towards a recovery. So, so there is no clear engine of growth going on. Um, so the Areas that depend on global growth need to find another engine of growth. And it's not clear that Europe has found one. And that's why when the Dutch are pushing for structural reform, it's not about punishing countries like Italy. It is about trying to find more endogenous growth engines.
0: Mohammed Al-Arin there, Bloomberg opinion columnist and chief economic advisor to Allianz. Up next, the conversation continues with David Stubbs of JP Morgan Private Bank, right here on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable, with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAP Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson will be back with us next week. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Earlier on today, we caught up with David Stubbs of J.P. Morgan Private Bank about the next steps in Europe. Take a listen to what he had to say.
1: Yeah, John, I think a modest positive surprise. The fact that they're coming back and talking again shows real intent to nail down the, the headline numbers in this deal. John, we knew that there would be uh, some compromises on the road to final uh, final uh, recovery and and final agreement here. We knew the headline number would come down, looks like it is from that 750. We knew there'd be a shift from, uh, gr- uh, from grants into loans. I'm encouraged that the latest a number one grant seems to be 390 billion, down from 500. That's still enough for the market to to see this as a significant uh, package, if not a panacea uh, for for the troubles. Once we get uh, some agreement on that, hopefully it comes today, uh, then we get move on to some other thorny issues around governance, around um, conditionality on the money. But ultimately, John, our view remains the same. This this is going to get done, and it's quite a big moment for Europe.
4: David Stubbs, how is your market strategy coloured? By what you hear from Bruce Kasman and Michael Faroli, I mean, the fact is our audience listening, our audience hearing this is saying, look, there's got to be layoffs to come. How do you adapt your market call to the presumed unemployment to come?
1: Well, you're absolutely uh, you're right, Tom. Yeah, there's going to be a lot more unemployment coming, and certainly a shift from what was temporary unemployment into permanent to some degree. Uh, it's going to be a very, very challenging labor market in the United States and around the world for a number of quarters, probably a number of years. For us, that means a couple of things. It means, uh, firstly, it confirms we are early cycle. There's going to be plenty of spare capacity in the economy to grow into in coming years. It's going to mean that inflation is likely to be very low. Central banks are you know, full of your know, foot to the floor trying to get the economy uh, you know, back up and running, trying to get inflation back to target. And that tells you a few things. You're going to have policymakers at your back. Hopefully, we don't get any policy mistakes. Obviously, the debate in Washington about the uh, the next level of stimulus, very very important. Hopefully uh, we see that number higher rather than lower. The U.S. economy certainly needs it, and as long as we get those things to those things together. We should, in theory, be in early cycle investing, which means usually you want to start to put cash to work in parts of the economy, sectors and companies that are going to survive the shakeout and thrive in the next decade. And we also want to take exposure throughout the credit spectrum. It looks to us potentially, you could even be past the, the peak of the uh, of the default uh, cycle. In this cycle, you've seen a lot of defaults and downgrades, over 200 billion of fallen angels out of the investment-grade market as well. A lot of that cleansing has been done. Spreads are still wide. You can take tactical exposure there and also find a way within this ultra-low-yielding environment to have some anchors to your portfolio. We like a little bit of an allocation to gold as well as utilizing some alternatives in this environment, Tom.
3: What's the policy mistake, David, that you're most concerned about?
1: A premature turn towards austerity, the exact policy mistake that was made across the developed world in the early part of the last decade in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Getting worried too soon about the trajectory of public debt trying too soon and too aggressively to close the budget deficit uh, when there is uh, large parts of the economy that need support, that are fragile, and you you haven't seen a return to the momentum, the animal spirits of the private sector, and really starting to put people back to work. We know that with with assistance from central banks, the governments of the developed world have no problem issuing the vast amounts of debts they they need. I don't see a problem anytime soon. They need to uh, keep focused on uh, supporting the market through this enormous shock, Supporting uh, you know, the the economy, businesses large and small, allow you know, the the recovery to continue, hopefully get past this health crisis for sure. Uh, and then you know, start to lay the foundation for future growth. All of that is more important than, than worrying about the budget deficit right now.
0: There seems to be commitment to that here in the United States, a $2 trillion spread nevertheless between Republicans and Democrats. Quite clearly, there are three broad debates in the equity market right now, David. It is small caps versus large. It is value versus growth. It is international versus the United States. On those three debates, David, do you have one that you have a little bit more conviction on over the others?
1: I think at the moment you'd be very brave to go into outright small caps because you know, we are still dealing with a lot of the economic fallout, and that is particularly difficult for smaller companies to deal with. They tend to have higher leverage levels, lower cash balances. They tend to have less ability to tap certain funding sources. Uh, and then if you look into the, fi- the financials in the small cap, if we do see uh, a wave of, of bankruptcies and solvencies uh, you know, amongst the household sector, it'll be the smaller uh, you know, the, the smaller banks which maybe take a hit there. So I think probably have most conviction on, on that. The other two rotations, of course, we talk about it every day, when to buy international, when to buy value. Obviously, the course of the virus is a key, uh, is a key variable here. As horrendous as the situation is in parts of the world and including in some of the, the, the states in the US, if you look at the growth rates to to, to cases and to hospitalizations, Tentatively, we see a little bit of a slowdown just on the growth rate at the moment. Markets usually react, as you know, to the second derivative, and so potentially that could you know, that, that could be part of a modest rotation if we see better news going forward. Big if, of course, and of course we're in, in earnings season now. That's going to give us a lot of color. Again, we see a huge sector spread. We uh, we expect you know, every sector is going to be negative. We think, but obviously utilities and tech uh, only single digits. Other areas much much worse affected uh, affected than that. We could, for all we know, see another blowout quarter from tech earnings and, and this weakness in the last few days will we'll turn around. Yeah. But any sign that we are getting past the threat of further shutdowns in key economies of the world should be greeted very well by the value sector, by international stocks.
4: OK, but, David, the fact is we have value traps. I look at Chevron Noble as a textbook example It was taken out for barely a premium. Noble was an August company years ago. What a crater it's been. How do you avoid the value traps that are out there?
1: Great question, uh, Tom. I think focus on your long-run growth trajectories of these underlying sectors. We talk about these themes, these mega trends all the time. Everyone uh, can see how the digital economy is gained from this situation, the need for healthcare innovation, sustainability's renewed focus amongst uh, investors. If your underlying business is linked in some ways to those uh, trends, and you are trading at a reasonable valuation, well, then obviously the likelihood of a value trap you know, goes away. I think also the, you know, the, the willingness of management to, you know, to evolve in a company very, you know, very rapidly and the strength of the balance sheet, key things that we, that, that we look
0: at. David Stubbs there of JP Morgan Private Bank. Up next on the program, we'll touch base with Michael Regan as the equity market starts to get a little bit of a lift, tech bouncing back, and then you'll hear from the World Bank president, David Malpass. We'll do that next on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Is the cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is the cable live across the Capitol on TAB Digital Radio. This Here's Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson will be back with us next week. I'm Jonathan Farrow. At the close today, the FTSE just a little softer, a little lighter. We head south by a half of 1% on the FTSE 100, down by around about 29 points. In the United States, a bounce back for big tech in America. The Nasdaq up by 1.44% after really underperforming the benchmark S&P 500 last week. We'll touch on that story in just a moment. We advance through the halfway point of the session in the United States, up about a half of 1%, a third of 1% on the S&P. 500. In foreign exchange, the euro advancing earlier on today. That euro move fades as we reconvene the meeting over in Brussels, Belgium. Euro dollar out by just a tenth of one percent or so. Cable is where you see the outperformance for pound sterling against the U.S. dollar. Your pound buying you 126.48. And just to round things out for you in the bond market, quick snapshot, quick feel of the bond market in the United States. The Treasury market bid yields lower by a single basis point. The curve just a little bit flatter. Your 10-year 0.61. Michael Regan with us now, senior editor and league blogger for Markets Live. Mike, this is the issue, isn't it? We hear this a lot, that many of these companies can get by without the face-to-face travel anymore. All it will take is for one big bank on Wall Street to start visiting clients again, and the other big banks on Wall Street will start to get worried that they've got an edge, and they'll start visiting clients face-to-face again. This will just come down to whether the clients want them there in the office or not.
5: Yeah, I, I imagine that's right, John. And you know, I, I think deciding when that time is, and and when the clients are actually, uh, you know, happy to have a face-to-face visit, is is the big question. Um, you know, there's so much uh, uh, hope built around these vaccines, um, and not from Wood. Hopefully, they really. Do deliver, you know, uh, on schedule like, like we're expecting maybe uh, late in this year, early next year. Um, but I think that uh, obviously is going to be the big, uh, you know, the, the big sort of reopening that gets people confident to, to really act like they did before all this. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting looking at the, the US equity market right now. I mean, we do have the S&P up a little bit. But, boy, uh, it's not a very strong sort of breath to that rally. There's actually way more stocks down today, about 350 stocks down in the S&P compared to 150 up. But you do have those big heavyweights doing well again. Amazon up about 5% today. And This is after they dropped like 7% last week. But you know, yeah. you have all those sort of famous blue chips, your Microsoft, your, your uh, Alphabet, Apple, all up. So, kinda of going back to that reverting back to that old safety trade of the big, you know, internet enabled tech companies that are are considered sort of a haven in all this and uh, you know, looking at the big losers and, and there's not really any much company specific news to describe all this other than I think just a yet another Monday reassessment of the of the virus. But you know, looking at Darden restaurants down about Five and a half percent, uh, most of your major airlines, like Charlie was talking about, uh, uh, are down, MGM, the casinos. Um, so at least for the start of the week, it, it looks like, you know, we're, we're kind of reverting to that notion of, um, you know, it, it, the reopening is not going to accelerate, uh, from here too much.
0: Big Tech back on top. Michael Regan, always great to catch up with you, mate. Michael Regan there, our senior editor and lead blogger on some of the price action that we're seeing today. Amazon, as he points out, at 5.5%, five-day losing streak for Amazon last week. And there you go. As soon as you get that correction, bang, buying. Once again, this Monday, Microsoft up by 2.73%, going into earnings this coming Wednesday. As Michael points out, huge couple of weeks coming up for big tech. Microsoft this Wednesday, back end of the month. Facebook on the 29th, I think. On the 30th, we'll hear from Amazon and Apple as well. Up next, you'll hear from the World Bank president, David Malpass, on the need for debt forgiveness. That's next on Bloomberg Radio.
1: is the cable of Jonathan Ferrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is the cable live across the capital on DAB digital radio this is Bloomberg Radio. Earlier on today we caught up with David Malpass of the World Bank, the president. He discussed how the bank is coping with the effects of COVID-19. Take a listen.
6: Hi, t- hi, Tom uh, and John and Lisa. Um, they, so the ADAP- the World Bank's doing okay. People are able to work from home. We've gotten a lot of programs out, over a hundred programs that are directly at the health emergency. the The problem is that developing countries are under immense pressure because of the global recession, the economic shutdown in the advanced countries, and the pandemic itself is still spreading uh, through countries. Uh, and they also entered this problem with a lot of debt already on their books so those are the problems that we're trying to address uh, as we as the recession deepens and then we hope finds the other side and we come out of it
4: In your distinguished career at Bear Stearns, and particularly, David, as you build out that world-best Latin American coverage at Bear Stearns, there was a mechanism for challenges in the third world, in the emerging markets. Are the mechanisms there right now, or do we just have to go to a debt suspension? I mean, can we use the processes in EM that we have available, or is this a new territory?
6: I think we have to look at new territory because the debt itself has changed. In the 1980s, I was in the Reagan administration, and there was a Latin debt crisis that had come from the petrodollar recycling. Uh, remember, the oil prices had been high, and so the banks could—the uh, uh, the, the banks had a lot of deposits, and they would lend those to the developing world. And the problem was they didn't get paid back when oil prices went low. So it was a bank— Crisis because they they couldn't, uh, the the bank deposits were a big portion of the capitalization of the banks, or they were critical. Um, It was syndicated loans. So this is quite different. There's Euro bonds involved. uh, So a a lot more commercial uh, creditors. Than in in the past, uh, and also the uh, the nature of the debt. China China is a much bigger player in this. They they weren't really a, a, mm-hmm. a creditor in the 1980s. So that those two changes mean you have to look at a different process. Uh, what we're doing is a suspension of uh, of debt payments now. Uh, th- th- that. that that's the official bilateral creditors. And we're encouraging the commercial creditors to stop taking payments from the poorest countries. Uh, that That's a response to the crisis.
4: Uh, David, you do not represent the Trump administration, but you were certainly selected by the president to take over this important task at the World Bank. Great. He's going after other institutions, his own CDC, He's going after the World Health Organization. For all I know, he's going to go after the World Bank. How should your institution respond to a president who is not an internationalist?
6: One correction, Tom, I wasn't selected by him. I was proposed by him to the world community. I was happy to be... Elected Noted. by the board by the board and governors of the World Bank unanimously, and it's been going well in terms of uh, the changes that we're making at the World Bank that can help countries with growth, with better living standards, with all the things that we're that we're trying to do: climate, education, health, uh, and on down the line. Poverty is a big part of the problem, um, so. If you, if you boil it down, we want to have international cooperation among the various organizations, but the drive for growth has to come from individual countries. So that's what we're trying hard to do at the World Bank. Uh, our, we have country offices in almost all of the developing countries and th- those offices work with the governments to find out what will work best for the countries. And then we can help fund it with grants. And loans. You know, the World Bank heavily is doing grants, which helps a lot with the net positive flow into the poorest countries. That's what we want others to do. You know, it, it's it's hard to say you're going to make a loan uh, to a country that's that's in extreme poverty because where are they going to get the resources to pay it back? So we try to shift the balance toward grants.
0: David Malpass there of the World Bank on a really important conversation on the need for grants and not loans. Up on next on this program, we will catch up with Mike Worth of Chevron after a big deal to purchase noble energy for five billion. Take a listen to that next on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg
5: Radio.
0: This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson will be back with us next week. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Earlier on this morning, Chevron agreeing to buy Noble Energy for about $5 billion in shares as the oil giant looks to beef up in the Permian Basin amid the wreckage of the worst ever crude crash. Earlier on today, Alex Steele caught up with the Chevron chairman and CEO, Mike Wirth. Take a listen.
7: This is a deal that builds on Chevron's strengths. These are high-quality assets at a fair price. It's a good deal for the shareholders of both companies and I think it shows why we're, we're, we're different than many others in, in our sector. This isn't just about uh, the Permian Basin. Uh, Noble's got a, a very impressive position in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, position in West Africa, a nice position in Colorado. So this is a, a diversified company with assets that, uh, that fit our portfolio well, that fit our capabilities well. And of course, their shareholders now have access to a stronger balance sheet, mm-hmm. a stronger dividend, and they retain some, some upside exposure to an eventual recovery in the economy and price.
8: So from that perspective, it seems like the takeover was opportunistic rather than strategic, which then leads me to believe this is not the start of a Chevron buying spree in the, in the Permian to consolidate even more acreage there. Is that the correct interpretation?
7: Well, I think, uh, you know, we're always looking, and, and we look at things through the lens of value. And uh, we have to see a a good portfolio fit, and so there are strategic screens that we look at for any transaction. We've got a pretty high bar for these things, and we have to believe these are assets that will compete for capital within our portfolio that will strengthen our portfolio long term and help us improve returns. This is a deal that's accretive on earnings per share, free cash flow per share, and returns. And so it's got uh, strong financial attributes and, uh, and these, are, these are assets that we expect to be in our portfolio for a long, long time to come. So it's a strategic uh, fit, and uh, certainly we think that the time is right for both companies to, uh, to engage in this combination. So let
8: me ask you a different way. Is, if you had like a little sheet of paper with some names scribbled on it, are there any more names on that sheet of paper for possible takeovers? Or are you putting that in the drawer for right now?
7: Alex, uh, you and I have talked before. We always have a long sheet of names that we look at. <laughs> Uh, but there's, a, there's also a, a strict set of criteria that we apply, and, uh, and, and we've got, like I say, a high bar. We look to create synergies here. We're looking to improve returns. And, uh, and look, this is aligned with our disciplined returns-focused strategy, and, uh, and so uh, we're focused on, uh, on this transaction. We think it's a very uh, good one for the shareholders of both companies, and, uh, and that's really our focus today.
8: Something that was also interesting with Noble in particular is I just wonder what biggest, bigger driver was it for you? Was it the international assets, particularly the assets in Israel and the Eastern Mediterranean, or was it conventional? Where do you see unconventional, excuse me, here in the U.S.? Where do you see the biggest appeal?
7: Well, it's all of the above. I mean, it's a, it's a really attractive asset base. And uh, look, I think uh, they're, they're, they've been so successful in the Eastern Mediterranean that, uh, that, that it does uh, bring with it. Uh, a set of uh, geopolitical complexities and potential risks that for a company the size of Noble is, is, uh, is pretty meaningful. Uh, we have a, a large global diversified portfolio. We have exposure to many different basins, many different geographies, many different governments, and, uh, and we've got many decades of experience in managing these risks. And so I think uh, that's a very nice fit. Uh, their position in the Permian is, uh, is very good, but it's not the same scale as ours. So mm-hmm. I think we bring that together, and you've got scale efficiencies and capital efficiencies uh, that we'll see. And then their position in Colorado is an add for us we like unconventionals. Uh, we've got unconventionals in Argentina, in Canada, and in uh, in the US, in, in uh, Texas and New Mexico. This gives us exposure to another unconventional basin that's a high quality resource. So, the entire portfolio is a nice fit. It's not about one or the other.
8: So let's just take the unconventional for just a second. Uh, you mentioned on the call the DJ basin was um, uh, more advanced, more mature. Is is the right way to interpret that? Is that when the market opens up to sell, that might be top on the list to sell?
7: No, I don't. Wanna, I don't want to say that at all. What I was really saying is that uh, we've got multiple unconventional positions, as I said, in the Vaca Muerta in Argentina, in the Duvernay in, in Canada, in the Permian, and uh, and and the the Eastern Colorado unconventional uh, basin is actually further along in its development cycle, so the risks are lower than they would be in Argentina or in Canada. The geology is proven, mm-hmm. and uh, the performance has been strong. So it's, uh, it's, it's more akin uh, to the Permian than it is to the emerging unconventionals mm-hmm. that we see in some of these other countries.
8: You, you did mention, talking about selling assets, that now is a really bad time to be a seller and that the right price it's better. Do you have an idea what that price is based on this purchase being at $40? Does it have to be $50, $60, Brent?
7: Well, I, you know, I think most transactions are not done based on the price of the day. But on a view of the future. And and right now we're in a period of time where there is uncertainty uh, about uh, the health situation in the world, about the economic situation in the world. And uh, people are tending to be somewhat conservative in terms of what they're uh, willing to do in asset-type transactions in that kind of a world. I think as these uncertainties are clarified, as people have a clearer view to the future, uh, they'll have an opinion on uh, commodity price Uh, that begins to allow some of this transaction activity to to resume. Mm -hmm. So it's less about the price of the day, and it's more about the ability to see into the future.
8: Let's see into the future when it comes to LNG, because we mentioned the international assets, and Noble has a position in the Aphrodite gas discovery in Cyprus. Um, Can you give me some sense of how you view the development of that project based on the very depressed global natural gas prices that we're seeing?
7: Yeah, right now... uh, both oil and gas are in abundant supply and uh, in excess of demand, and so prices reflect that. Uh, the Aphrodite field is a nice uh, discovered resource opportunity. Uh, there are some complexities uh, in developing that field that need to be sorted through, and uh, it could go into a natural gas or an LNG market. Uh, it also could go into uh, into piped gas, into a number of uh, regional Markets there, and that's all part of how a, a project like this ultimately is, co- you know, is, mm-hmm. is evaluated and, and developed. Is evaluating different market alternatives, the logistics, the investments, the risks, and so we'll work with the partners on that project over time to uh, clarify those alternatives and come up with the right answer for that field.
0: Mike Worth, that the Chevron chairman and CEO, speaking to Bloomberg's Alex Steele on the purchase of Noble Energy for $5 billion. Coming up tomorrow, we'll round up the latest talks in Brussels as the negotiations go into a fourth day and advance the conversation on what comes next in Washington, D.C. as the Democrats and Republicans settle their differences over fiscal stimulus. From New York for London, this was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.